0: This is Chris Reynolds and welcome to the Entrepreneur House podcast. The Entrepreneur House is a business accelerator for established entrepreneurs creating events and retreats all over the world. If you're ready to take your business to the next level with other successful entrepreneurs, be sure to apply at theentrepreneurhouse.com. And now, on to today's episode. On this episode, listeners, we are welcoming Greg Barry to the podcast. Greg is the founder of Manisibid. Manisibid is an online auction government website where the public can bid on the government surplus auctions. We will find out how Greg created a business and relationships with cities and municipalities to help local governments sell their surplus at a premium price. Greg started his entrepreneurial career right out of high school having quick success and the support of his family. Nearly 20 years later, he's created a very successful, sustainable business. Not only that, Greg does live in Philadelphia, but his business is location independent. On another note, Greg gives a big shout out to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, USA, where he considers one of the most underrated cities in the US and in the world. And with that, let's hop into today's episode. All right, let's do it. All right, in three, two, one, and welcome, Greg, to the podcast. How you doing,
1: Chris? Awesome to be on, man. I've been loving the podcast. Uh, so so honored to be on, man. Thanks thank for you. Having
0: me. Thanks for coming, man. And I'm glad you're enjoying our episodes. You're calling in from snowy Philadelphia today. Is that correct?
1: That is correct, Philadelphia. No, I just wanted to say, um, you know, just to kind of give a little bit of a, a, a shout out to, to Philadelphia you know, I, I really believe it's kind of one of the, the most underrated cities in the U S if not the world. I I don't think people really understand what goes on here until they visit. Um, mostly because I think we kind of get sandwiched in between, uh, you know, New York and DC, um, mm-hmm. or, you know, kind of even Boston. Um, and you know, we're kind of the underdogs, but we love it that, you know, we, we, we love it that way. And, uh, you know, and of course we're home to Rockies, you know? The, yeah. most, uh, the most famous underdog, I guess. <laughs> and, uh, but we're also home to Ben Franklin, I think the most famous entrepreneur, one of the most famous entrepreneurs. Um, by the way, I didn't even – I didn't realize so lately I've been reading his biography, which I really recommend. Um, but he created the term Junto, which we all use. Really? A person, uh, you know, and uh, yeah, I didn't realize it. And it was actually uh, also referred to as the Leather Apron Club which I thought was
0: pretty
1: cool. Uh, so, yeah, it was kind of, kind of interesting. And, uh, of course, he has a, a really interesting background with a lot of inventions and, and businesses um, that he's started, like the uh, the first volunteer fire company, first public hospital. He invented the bifocals. He did not invent electricity, as people think. Um, what? He just kind of <laughs> – <that's, laughs> he did not invent electricity. People will be shocked. He used the the whole kite with the key um, experiment to show that, like basically, lightning was electricity. That uh-huh. They the same thing, and from that he created the lightning rod, uh, which he uh, which was used to keep homes from being struck by lightning and burning down.
0: Sounds like the kite so, and the key was a
1: publicity stunt
0: from the 1800s.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's it's you know what to make I feel the history like books that's like a wise tale. and like but for some reason you know it's that that story (laughs) story (laughs) remains pretty strong we had to go Um, test out this
0: theory like fly a kite in a storm and see if it gets hit by lightning and put a key on there
1: it's pretty ballsy (laughs) (laughs) yeah you know you know philly's very uh a very gritty town and uh you know but it's evolved quite uh quite a few years uh, uh quite a bit over the last few years especially so um, and I'm sure we'll get into it. But when I started my first company, which is a technology company in ninety eight uh, here in uh, the Philadelphia area, there there really wasn't much of a tech scene. there was there was a little bit with the dot com uh, mm-hmm. bubble. And then kind of once that burst, things went like really, really quiet. Um, and since probably in two thousand six or seven, a startup community really started to blossom again. and you know, it's really in full full swing right now. We have some awesome uh, startup companies here of all sizes. So we have like big pharma companies coming in, um, and you know those those sorts of like biotech companies. But you know then we have the traditional like you know VC funded startups. But then we also have a pretty um, you know pretty good community of uh, solo founders or uh, bootstrapped founders um, or fun-strapped founders uh, and companies. So it's pretty exciting, to, uh, pretty exciting times um, to be here. So, like I it. really like it. And it's interesting that a lot of people are moving from New York City to Philadelphia um, and, then, and then commuting back to New York City for, for their work just because the cost of living is significantly less, but yet so close, an hour train ride, uh, really, um, to New York. So uh, I, we, I always say Philadelphia is a manageable New York City. Uh, we have most things that New York has, uh, although I'm sure uh, New York City folks would probably disagree with that. But huh. for the most part, I, you know, I really find that people, once they get here, I think people need to come and they need to experience it and then they get it. I don't think people get it without coming here.
0: But Yeah, th- that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. For any location-independent traveling entrepreneurs that are out there, I highly recommend – visiting those cities in the northeast of the united states because they're absolutely that part of the country is very beautiful but you can hit so many important places in the history of america in just a short drive if you start up in you know maine and then come down through new new hampshire and connecticut and massachusetts and new york and delaware and then pennsylvania and philly and washington dc and you can stop in and see greg and check out philly and You take you. Well, to you big, can see
1: the Liberty Bell. You that, can see where the, uh, yeah. the Constitution and Declaration <laughs> of
0: Independence were signed. So, yeah.
1: tons, tons of history here for sure. You take him to Benjamin Franklin's house. That's uh, well, uh, right? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, we could stop there. There's, there's just so many places that we could, <laughs> that, that that we could stop for yeah. sure. And of course, everyone wants to have cheesesteaks when they stop in.
0: <laughs> of course, why would you not? Big shout out to Philly. Okay, sounds good. I've never been, but actually, it's on my list of to visit cities. And it does. I think there's a lot of great cities in America that get overlooked by these bigger cities. You know, I grew up in Missouri, and I think Missouri is an absolutely fascinating place. And once when I start telling my other fellow travelers about Missouri, they're kind of their eyes get big and they they get excited about visiting there because when people visit the U.S., you know, they'll hit New York, California, and Texas. But there's a lot of uh, incredible places all throughout the U.S. that really get looked over and and Philly does sound pretty cool. All right, Greg, let's jump into your history as an entrepreneur. I know you've got a vast amount of experience for the past almost 20 years as an entrepreneur starting straight out of high school. So why don't you give us a a brief history about that?
1: Man, that makes me sound so old. (laughs) <laughs> 20 years experience I'm like, wait a second man, that's actually probably right. yeah man um, I just uh, so I started as you said my first company right out of high school uh, pretty much like the day after I graduated high school um, I had some opportunities in high school that I took advantage of um, that really kind of set me up to be able to, to, uh, get started pretty early. And it's funny now, like I I was talking, um, I do a lot of talks to like young entrepreneurs and high school groups and middle school groups of kids interested in being an entrepreneur. And one of the questions surprisingly that I get a lot, they're like, well, why did you wait till after high school? In other Mm -hmm. words, like, why didn't you start it in high school? And at the time, I mean, this was 98 when I graduated high school, I like, that wasn't really a thing. Like you were like a nerd if you wanted to start a business then. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, so it was a much, a much different time than now. Like we didn't have like Shark Tank, and you know shows like that, and The Profit, and that sort of thing to like get people motivated. Back then, it, there really just wasn't a whole lot. So it was definitely a different era. But uh, took advantage of some opportunities in high school with some, uh, with some apprenticeships, which uh, I'm a big fan of. Being an apprentice, um, you just learn so much, and you get paid to to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, so I had some, uh, really good experience in the information technology, um, industry, very, at a very young age. I mean, I've been messing around with computers since I was like 10 or 11. Um, and my mom, uh, she was, and still is, uh, runs a help desk, uh, for a, for a, a big corporation. And so she used to bring these like computer books home all the time and I would just read them and like mess around and like, break stuff on our family computer, which, (laughs) by the way, again, we were very fortunate to have, like, in 91, 92, 93. Right. It's, like, very early on. So um, I really took an interest in that, and my uncle at the time was, like, a big, like, kind of computer nerd, and he was doing, like, bulletin board systems, um, BBS systems. So, like, I kind of learned what that was all about. This was, like, pre-internet, I guess. Well, not really pre-internet, but pre, like, web web pages, Um, and... So it was just – I had a lot of experience in IT, and then um, I took Microsoft certification classes and blah, blah, blah at night during high school along with the experience. And I started an IT uh, consulting company doing um, mostly uh, network uh, installations and support for you know small, medium businesses in the Philadelphia area. And it was kind of a, a way to – there was a lot of need with like Y2K coming up, so 98 and you know 99 – were just big years in, uh, for, for just upgrades and, you know, that sort of thing to prepare for YTK. And of course we know that ended up really not being a big deal, but, yeah. but it was good for the bottom line. The and, uh, so I ended up going to college and, and worked full time while, you know, growing this business while, while I was going to college. So I would like move classes around at night and just try to make myself available and just hustled. And so once I was done with college, I decided to, like, get really serious with the, the business and kind of change the name and incorporated and, like, set it up right. Uh, so that was uh, 2002 or so and um, ended up getting a, a really big customer that, that set me up to then be able to grow some more. And so by that time, I probably had a couple dozen customers, I'd say, and then um, ended up growing it to a couple hundred by the time I, I sold it in 2010 nice. uh, to focus on the growth of my current company, Municibid, which I started back in 2006. Um, but kind of messed around with some other things like I had um, back in 2001. I was like, I tried to set up an e-commerce s- s- store. It was called shot score and it was going to be like online sales of like hockey equipment. Uh-huh. And it never got off the ground because it was so expensive. And, hard to get an e-commerce store off the ground at the time. And I just didn't know, really know what I was doing then. And, um, yeah, so then I, that didn't get off the ground. And then I, so I tried it again later on in like 2007 or eight with, um, another, a drop shipping store, which, which did get off the ground and actually did pretty well, um, which is called home fun zone and HomeFunZone.com. Uh, but that was uh, a drop shipping site of like home leisure stuff, so things for your game room or for, like outdoor, like for your pool and that sort of thing. And it did pretty well, but more importantly, it gave me some, it gave me like real quick, like real experience with e-commerce and uh, and drop shipping, enough to know that at the time, like I saw the struggles of a drop shipping business pretty early on and realized that. This probably wasn't going to work long term, but I was happy to have that experience. But anyway, I digress. so back in 2006 is when I started Municipid, which uh, is my current and only company um, as of as of now. I got started with that. Um, once I start talking about Municipid, they're like, "Wow, like how'd you come up with that idea?" But basically, Municipid is a um, is an online government auction website, so it's kind of like eBay for government. But uh, and schools, so governments and schools list items they no longer need, and in some very small cases, confiscate um, for auction to the public. So anyone can buy, but only governments and schools in the U.S. are allowed to sell. Um, so we have just just over 2,000 governments at this point. Um, but we started out with zero in uh, 2006 when it was just uh, kind of a crazy idea. And um, so how I got the idea was I was elected to a local office to a local town council, uh, which is also kind of an interesting story. But um, like it was just kind of an uphill battle to, to get elected. But I did. Um, and, you know, through my very early on, I saw this problem that our town was having with selling stuff. So we'd sell like a, a, a police car for like $300 when this police car was worth $3,000. And mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, and then the next item on the agenda, we're struggling to come up with a thousand dollars to pay, you know, for some community project. And I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. We just gave away thousands of dollars, you know, and we would sell a couple cars at a time, three, five cars at a time. So we, we were literally leaving like $10,000 on the table, And I'm like, why aren't we selling this stuff online? And like, what, what's, what's going on here? So, I did some research, saw that other towns throughout uh, the state and throughout the country were having the same exact problem. And at the time, not a lot of there, there weren't a whole lot of states that were even allowing these municipalities and schools to sell stuff online. So they're using this kind of old, outdated, outdated process with listing things on classifieds and like people have to come to town hall, and it's just very. Confusing and intimidating uh, and not very convenient way of, you know, bidding on the stuff, let alone these people not knowing this stuff was for sale in the first, first place. That's kind of where the idea came for Municipate. And I'm like, all right, well, why are not we sell the stuff on eBay? And over time, I realized there were a couple problems. I call them the three C's, uh, cost, compliance and customer service. Um, and customer service really being the biggest issue, there's no one at eBay that's going to hold the hands of these governments and schools mm-hmm. to help them sell the stuff and match their regulations, which is where the compliance piece comes in. And then the cost was uh, you know, pretty expensive for what the governments were selling. And you know, so we sell a lot of vehicles, heavy equipment, tools, that sort of thing. So that's kind of where it all got started, and I took you know this idea, I built out this uh, very early, terrible website, and, <laughs> but it was good enough at the time, and I, I took it to a couple of people I know in some other municipalities. Uh, they tried it, and it worked so much so that they thought there was a problem, and <laughs> like, they, they thought like they, it couldn't be real, and the, you know the guy shows up with a 500 dollars check, for a lawnmower they were hoping to sell for a hundred dollars and took it away and so we took those results got testimonials and really built from there and in fact most of our business from you know the governments and schools coming on board is referrals i would say 80 percent or more uh, are just governments talking with one another
0: that's incredible man okay i got a couple questions when you got you, your first contract, was with the municipality that you were working with?
1: Yeah, or- I mean, it really wasn't a contract. In fact, most of our most of the agencies that we work with now, you know, we're on an as-needed basis. We don't require them to enter into contracts or give us any kind of exclusivity. Uh, so, yeah, they just they use us as needed. We're confident in our, you know, our system and our results, and you know, they continue to come back. And back again and and realize that this is really the easiest and best way to sell their stuff for the most money so we don't you know we're we're confident in that so therefore we don't really require them to enter into any contracts now there are some agencies that they require us to be in contracts um and so that you know so we have a, a handful of of contracts with governments that, gotcha. that uh that utilize us
0: and so they tried your website out and it worked. And then how did you get the word to spread it throughout other cities and municipalities?
1: Yeah, so it's important to note so we we have two sides of the business. So we have the side where we try to get governments and schools to sell their stuff with us and then we have the other side of the public, the buyer side and marketing stuff to buyers. So basically in the very beginning it was literally a, you know an introduction or um, you know kind of just meeting with people that I knew, or people that I knew, kind of in government that knew people, and just presenting this idea, which was a really, really tough sell. And sometimes it's still a tough sell ten years later, or eleven years later. But uh, at the time, you know, this was brand new. No one was using it. No one even knew they could. And so it was kind of an uphill battle. But there was nothing really to lose by giving it a shot. So they, uh, our, our very first item was a was a like a riding mower. And so this, this small town, they had this riding mower, and it was like an easy thing to try. And basically what we did is we ran an ad in like a local like penny picture type like circulation um, thing. And then went to like every grocery store, any place that we could post like a little brochure with like the pull-off tabs. Mm-hmm. Like I literally went like on like, <laughs> I don't know, Friday night or Saturday morning and put these things up everywhere. Mm -hmm. And fortunately, in the local area of this town. And that was like that like early on uh, sort of like feet on the ground approach is what really got us started. And then and then the neighboring town, you know, we were able to say, look, you know, this town wanted one hundred dollars for this lawnmower and they got five hundred dollars for it. And, you know, they that the town that sold the lawnmower is like, oh, my God, it was so easy. So the neighboring town's like, OK, the, you know, we have this truck that we're trying to sell. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of snowballed from there very slowly. So, you know, um, it's a this when you're dealing with government and and other, you know, and other companies, uh, it's a slow it's kind of a slow and long game. But it works. Um, the long game works. Um, and we realized pretty early on, like, you know, of course when I started the company, I'm like, ah, oh, you know, we're going to build it up to here and in five years, we're going to sell it and I'm going to go sit on an Island somewhere. <laughs> and quickly did I realized, you know what, really what building a company is all about is not building it to sell, but bu- building it to provide like crazy amounts of value by solving a, a problem, you know, right. truly solving a problem. And once I kind of took that mindset that was when we really, really started taking off. And, you know, um, because the, they could see my passion for this because it really did, like, like piss me off when I would see a town selling a backhoe for $1,000 when I knew they could get 15000 for it. Right. And that, like, drives me crazy, uh, especially at the time, you know, now we're two, 2007 and eight. And the economy wasn't that great, um, and the, these towns were just kind of throwing away money. Um, so that's, that really is what drives me to solve this problem. And then, you know, and then from there, it's like, all right, how, what is the best way that we can provide as much value as possible, uh, to both the governments and schools that use us to sell. And then also to the buyers, you know, how are we able to make it more convenient? How can we make this easier for them to find these things that these governments are selling? And so by providing that value and, you know, solving a real problem, we've been able to consistently grow year over year at a really good clip. In fact, uh, December was our best month ever. Um, and, you know, every year has been significantly better than the previous year. And, you know, we continue to grow. We have about 30 agencies a month that come on board, uh, governments and schools wow. that come on board to sell us without a whole lot of marketing to them. Now, on the buyer side, we, you know, it's a there's a lot more marketing involved. Uh, to bring awareness and uh, you know get them on get them on board to to buy
0: yeah, so you're no longer going to sell the business and then go live on an island you're going to keep it
1: <laughs> for a while <laughs> well the interesting thing is i can just go live on the island and run the business um, so when i started when i started Municipid, i i really wanted it to be a location independent business even though i had no idea what you know that that term location independent actually even i I didn't know it even existed i just knew that i wanted to create a a business that i could run from anywhere Mm -hmm. as opposed to the it company which pretty much required me to be on site except for i was in mexico on vacation i think it was like 2003 or 4 and i did a skype call for the first time and like that opened my eyes. I was talking to a client who literally thought I was two blocks away mm-hmm. and it, it it didn't matter. At, at that point I realized, wow, it didn't matter. Now, unfortunately that business wouldn't allow me to you know, work remotely. But when I started Municipid, it, this was the, the business that I was gonna create that would allow me to travel, allow me to work from anywhere. I didn't need to be in one spot. And what kind of got me turned on to that idea was not the four hour work week. But, um, you know, kind of much earlier on um, reading, I think it was like 2003 or two, um, reading the myth Revisited um, mm. with regards to setting up processes and this idea of like sort of using external people. Now at the time, um, maybe I didn't realize it, but like it wasn't that easy to find a VA, you know, right. um, and it's just not what it is today. And so. Uh, I didn't really know anything about that, but I just knew that I, I wanted to create a a business that was built on processes that was built online and that I can run, that I can run remotely.
0: Greg, I want to ask you when you were starting out your first business, did you have the support of your family?
1: No, um, I, no, I, I really did have, uh, fortunately had, um, the support of my family I you know I created the business in my mom's basement in this back room Mm -hmm. in the basement I think I have like a picture of it it's kind of funny um and yeah and that's kind of where I got started and um I started the business and I bought my first house in 2002 and so like I just I, I hustled though like I didn't party and like go out and hang you know I didn't have that college life like Okay. My, like I was all about like just hustling. I mean, th- I hate the word. I hate the word hustle today because I feel like it's like you're not hustling. You know, you're like it's there's a difference, you okay. know, and so but I kind of feel like back then it was just, um, you know, you had it like I just did what it took to 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 make it. And the one thing um, one of my mentors said to me um Pretty early on, I don't know, I was probably fifteen or sixteen, and he's like, Look, don't focus on money, focus on what you need to do to make it and it will come. And at the time I'm like, Wow, like, yeah, I get that, you know, because before I'm thinking, Oh, you know, I'm gonna buy like I love Dodge Vipers and I in, in high school I'm like, I'm gonna build this business, I'm gonna have a Dodge Viper by the time I'm like twenty one or something. Mm-hmm. And of course I ended up buying a house instead of a Dodge Viper. (laughs) Better
0: investment, better
1: investment. (laughs) Well, I don't know. I mean, now looking back, I'm like, man, that Dodge Viper would have been a lot of fun, but I might not be alive. (laughs) 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 And you may not uh, have been
0: hustling so much with the the Viper. That's right.
1: (laughs) That's right. Yeah, so... Um. Yeah, man. I was just hungry. Um. And kind of wanted to make it work. And it's not that I didn't have fun. I had fun, like building the business. Like that was fun to me. Right. Uh. Yeah. So.
0: Did you? Where did you find your mentors at? Were they family friends?
1: Um. No, well. Sorta. Yes. And no. Um. I. Um. I got involved in this apprentice program. Uh. Through school. And. Um, ended up working, um, at actually the company that my mom still works at, um, today. Mm-hmm. Um, and in sort of like the computer engineering department, which was okay, but I really wanted to be in the IT department cause that was like the more exciting thing. Um, and so it, it was funny. I, when I first got involved with computers, I wanted to be a programmer and I was like programmed in like visual basic. And like, I think we had to learn like all these like old school Pascal and, Stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but like I, I kind of wanted to be a programmer. And then I really quickly realized like I'm nowhere like near nerdy enough and maybe not smart enough. To, <laughs> to <laughs> do. And I like I really enjoyed working with people uh, at the time as much as I like, you know, messing around with computers. I still enjoyed the, the people aspect. Right. In fact, um, kind of where I got my sales sort of like my sales experience is I was really fortunate in 15 uh, and I might've just turned 16. I got a job selling, uh, like TV stereos, uh, you know, just kind of home entertainment equipment at Sears on commission. And like, I, I don't, I just learned how to sell through there. And like, I killed it as like a teenager at Sears, you know, because I could only work nights and weekends, which of course is when people shop Uh and, uh, it just taught me a lot about a lot about sales and dealing with people.
0: Were you selling similar things at Sears as you do on Municipid now? Uh,
1: yeah, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, so um, a lot of people ask, like, what do people sell on Municipid? And it's literally everything and anything, okay, that gotcha. ever. Happened. So, like, you know, but it's mostly vehicles, heavy equipment, tools, things you would think like a, a, a government or a school would use. Um, but every now and then we get some, like, interesting items. We had a uh, an airplane that was seized um, yeah. that was, like, used for drug trafficking. We had a uh, this, like, awesome sailboat out of uh, Massachusetts that this, like, dude died on. And wow. the town kind of, like, acquired it because the family didn't want it. And so, like, just kind of interesting weird stories. Like, the suit of armor the city of Philadelphia just sold was, like, f- creepy. Mm-hmm. And, like, so it's, like, <laughs> just you never know what's going to pop up on our site from from day to day. And it's always surprising like like what comes up for auction but like what people pay for some of this stuff. Right. We had this like – the state hospital in Massachusetts sold all this like weird stuff. And in, in part of it was a, a carton of cigarettes from like 1972 or something. Wow. And it sold for like, I don't know, $175. And like who is buying this stuff, you know? and It's just – it's really interesting, so yeah. I wonder if it's still good. Can you smoke a 40-year-old pack of cigarettes? <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't smoke, and I don't, I'm don't. definitely not sure I would take a chance with that.
0: Do you enjoy those reality shows, those auction reality shows?
1: You know what? It's funny. I've only seen a couple of them. Um, like, I don't... I, I mean, of course, they're all scripted. Yeah. Um, and so I don't... I actually don't really watch a lot of TV, um, you know. If I do, I end up putting like, like at night, I'll like throw in like some like, like CNBC and watch like old reruns of Shark Tank, <laughs> <And> like. <laughs> um, and then every now and then I'll I'll watch some other things, but uh, yeah, I've seen a couple of those those shows, and but it's interesting. Those are our buyers, so we know yeah. that people that those shows are, are buyers that we can target.
0: Yeah, it, it's, it's cool. I'm looking at your website now, com and, I mean, there's some really good deals here. You know, you've got a 2011 Ford pickup for $2,000, but it won't sell for that, you know. So, I'm curious, kind of, Greg, <clears throat> um, you know, you have 11 days to sell this, this pickup, um, you know, closer to one day and then half a day and then as the hours count down do a lot of a lot of people jump on and start bidding then
1: yeah we have an interesting graph um so we we have a a really awesome metric system in place so we we really really know our numbers and we know like our kpis and we know like our metrics um but one of the charts that we have that i find always interesting and really it never changes is it charts um when bidders bid on items uh, throughout the auction process. So typically the auction, we recommend uh, items be up for 14 days and Mm -hmm. pretty much the main reason for that is to allow us to run marketing on it, on the items and get buyers in. But interesting. So, so what happens is for most items, there will be a couple bids right when the auction is listed or goes live. And then there'll be a lull in, and the action there won't really be a whole lot of bids and 90 i think it's like 90 or 95 percent of the bidding occurs within the last hour of the auction items it's just it's it's crazy um so we have a um we have a an anti-bid sniping uh system in place so basically what that is so like if you ever used ebay and you've got outbid at the last second by some bot or something that um you know, someone had running Mm -hmm. to bid against you and then just closed out, you know, the auction just ends at a set time. We don't allow that. So what happens is if a bid is placed within the final two minutes, the auction extends two minutes from that point uh, until no further bids are received. And that gives like everyone a fair opportunity and it prevents, you know, bots. Of course, we have that blocked by software anyway, but it would prevent someone from coming in at the very last second and placing a bid and, and, you know, blocking people out from from bidding and having a fair opportunity that makes sense people people either love that or they hate it but most (laughs) people love it because it gives them the opportunity to bid they only they only don't like it when they you know when they get kind of outbid or you know they're winning and then it extends a little bit for the most part they uh, everyone appreciates that because it's it's the fairest way to do it um and gives everyone an
0: opportunity. You guys really do have everything on the website here. I'm checking it out now. You can get an ambulance if anybody needs an
1: ambulance (laughs) or uh, some tractors. The ambulance and fire trucks really help deal with traffic.
0: (laughs) Greg, I'm curious. I'm sure you have some interesting stories from seeing these over, over the years. What's one of your more interesting product or a story that you have from one of the auctions on your website?
1: I would say I, there's again we have a lot of these kind of weird stories. Um, mm-hmm. But one that was really interesting was a uh, two and a half carat diamond ring out of Baton Rouge, and what happened was um, this is the story that I that I heard on it, um, and and there was some like David Yerman je- jewelry as well. It was kind of like all part of the same story, but um, this. Um, there was some guy was arrested for having uh, possession of cocaine, like a large amount of cocaine. Mm-hmm. And so he was arrested. The cocaine was stored, and you know at the the police, you know the evidence room, or the, they call it the property room. And I guess it was stored. And a police officer took the coke and sold it, <laughs> and ended up buying all this jewelry. Well, he got arrested and. <laughs> the jewelry was then confiscated and then eventually put up for auction on municipal. So it's kind of, <laughs> kind of weird. So that, that two and a half carat diamond ring sold for him was $20,000 just shy. Wow. Of the, it was nineteen six or 19,600. And, uh, so it's pretty interesting, um, how that, that story went. But, um, yeah, you know, most, for the most part, I wish we had a lot more stories like that because we would have a lot more content, a lot more interesting content, uh, to write about. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of one of them. But yeah, we, for the most part, they're kind of boring stories if there's even stories at all. Sometimes there's interesting stories about what people do with uh, items they buy, like kind of like cool bus conversions, like they'll buy a school bus and convert it, into like a tailgating
0: you
1: know, <laughs> thing, and then or like a, the, um, Sometimes we have these fire truck collectors that buy these fire trucks, or uh, you know, just like weird stories like that, like what people do with 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 the items. Uh, sometimes they're interesting. But like one thing that's interesting uh, and something I'm learning more about is the exporting uh, of goods. Um, oh yeah. And uh, so, like fire trucks really don't have great resale value because uh, most fire departments end up buying new. Right. Uh, fire apparatus and a lot of times when these uh fire trucks are ready to sell they're not really usable and so they need to be exported uh overseas or they're you know depending on the value or whatever but yeah they end up getting exported overseas or to south america uh to actually be used as fire trucks where there's really not a whole lot of value here in the united states um, so that's kind of an interesting thing. Uh, we used to have a we used to have more uh, movie production companies that would buy fire trucks, ambulances, police cars that would use them oh, yeah. uh, as movie props to blow up. But like for the most part now, they just use CGI and ah. they don't really need to to you know use this type of thing anymore. But what's your guys'
0: charge, Greg? Is that eight percent
1: for yeah? So when we when when we first started, it was a subscription business. So the governments would pay us an annual fee and they can sell as much as they wanted. And soon we soon realized that didn't leave us a whole lot of money to market the items effectively. Mm-hmm. So, and that that subscription fee was like a little bit of a hurdle to get over for the governments. So we said, all right, well, how can we make it free for the governments? So we said, well, all right, we're gonna have to charge the buyers something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and you know, for a lot of the, t- for a lot of the cases, these buyers go to like regular auctions like live auctions where they're charged the buyer's fee. And so we decided to come up with a competitive um, buyer's fee, which is 8% uh, currently uh, for the most part. And so basically what happens is the government keeps 100% of what they sell, uh, you know, and then the, the buyer pays the 8% in addition to the, the item. But, you know, it really is a win-win for everyone. So the the the, the government's – Definitely getting more money for their items yet at the same time. It's easier more convenient um, For the buyers to both find these items and to to bid and buy them uh, whereas before they would have to like Look for look for these ads at newspapers and track stuff down and it was just a, and then go to the town hall or like send in paperwork So we make it a, we provide a ton of value to the buyers you know in addition to the sellers by way of just plain convenience and uh, ease of use as compared to what they used to have to do. So we're saving them tons and tons of time. Um, and, and that 8% is pretty competitive with respect to what they would pay at a live auction or other providers.
0: What's it take to build a, an auction platform slash website? Because I was looking into it. I have a friend who runs an auction company, and he was asking me about it, and I don't know too much about him.
1: So the the very first system we had was was pretty bad, but it worked, you know, and it was right. just, it, it did what we basically needed to do, and we kind of replaced that entire system. I think it was in two thousand nine or ten, and since then, just continue we continue to build on it. Uh, like literally every day, we're pushing out new features, mm-hmm. uh, and tools, and that sort of thing. Um, I mean, as far as the, the, the core functionality, the auction, that's pretty much the same, no matter where you go. Um, you know, no matter you know, if you look at every auction site on the internet, all the core functionality is pretty much the same. Uh, where the differences are are the tools and the features that, uh, you know, that we provide. I guess is is really where the differences come down, um, and 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 the the kind of the look and feel, the user experience aspect of it um, is super, super important. And that's really where we, I think we excel. Like we we always have room for improvement for sure. Um, but we really try to pay attention to to both the detail of, you know, kind of how the site works. Right. And, and also like the back end technology. What's an estimated range to build a site like this? Man, that's tough to tell. Uh, that's really tough to say. I mean, you can buy off-the-shelf uh, auction platform, you know, programs uh-huh. um, that probably work just fine. Um, and you know, and I'm sure you can buy those for a couple thousand bucks. Um, and then you know, but we have a development team uh, based in Costa Rica that we uh, that we work with. That we're you know every day, like we're constantly right. working with them uh, as if they were here and uh yeah so i you know it's hard it, I, I i wish i could give you a number i kind of i think it kind of depends on what you're looking to do yeah we have you know we have all these different systems built in uh for both support and marketing that everything's kind of tied in and so that's you know we're really we're constantly working to optimize those systems uh, you know optimize the site uh, usability user inter- interface
0: I know your main marketing is just basically through word of mouth, but I think recently you started some other forms of marketing. Is there any other marketing, consistent marketing you use besides word of mouth that
1: has been effective for you guys? Yeah. So on the seller side, the government and school side, um, direct mail really works for us. Really? uh, Surprisingly. Yeah. uh, It's very effective. Uh, And then, uh, you know, we'll do some cold and warm emails. Um, We have a pretty effective campaign that works uh on that end uh and then we'll do we'll do some trade shows and conferences government trade shows and conferences although we really kind of back down from those because the attendance has dropped but we'll do some Mm. local ones which are a lot more effective but on the buyer side to bring in the buyers we we no longer go to uh, supermarkets and and home depot and lowe's and stick up uh brochures (laughs) that (laughs) i don't know it's quite feasible anymore but um, what we do a lot of now um, is a, a combination of a number of different things. So we, st- we actually do direct mail, uh, believe it or not, to certain um, categories of buyers. So um, like equipment, um, construction companies, people that buy heavy equipment, people that uh, landscaping companies that would buy like tractors and mowers and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, auto parts, uh, like small auto parts or auto repair shops that w- would buy old vehicles or like small used car you know dealerships um but we also utilize uh facebook heavily and believe it or not uh we also use instagram which is interesting because you wouldn't think for our niche which mostly men most mostly like kind of i don't want to say it just you know men between the ages of i'd say 35 and 60 are our typical buyer that are um you know interested in heavy equipment and vehicles and things like that. So you really wouldn't think those, that demographic of buyers would be on Instagram. But you know, when I started taking a look at this just over a year ago, or actually not even really a year ago, probably eight months ago, um, I, you know, I started to look at what kind of opportunity was there. And like, it's crazy just like in the heavy equipment niche and the, and the automotive niche, how many guys are on this and, and women. And it's, so we started putting some effort towards Instagram. We had 50 followers in like June 1st of last year, 2016. And we are very close to moving in to 10,000 followers at this point. Wow. On Plus, um, we're sending – we finally got smart and set up an, an Instagram landing page from our profile, which I believe we launched at the beginning of December. And we've had, I don't know, six or 700 visits from that, but with like a 20-some – percent conversion rate so we're getting like hundreds of emails uh from that from people that are interested so we have that side of it the face uh utilizing facebook has been tremendously successful for us um and we're moving in on something like a hundred thousand uh likes on that all organic for the most part wow Um, and uh you know of course we run paid ads and that sort of thing uh, but that's been really, really effective because of the targeting we can do, both on interest and more importantly geographically. Um, but the you know usul- utilizing the custom audiences uh, has been big, so we can export all of our buyers of let's say tractors, mm-hmm. and and we can even go further and say, all right, we're going to export all of our buyers of John Deere tractors and create lookalike audiences of people that have bid on. John Deere tractors mm-hmm. and then upload that list and let Facebook go out and create a lookalike audience, you know, of, a, of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people that we can then target specifically John Deere tractors to. Um, we also do, a, we've also over the past year uh, have a con- put a content development uh, strategy in place um, that is, the, uh, again, a long game. Um, it's something that doesn't happen overnight, kind of like Facebook traffic can happen overnight. Uh, content development takes a long time. So we have to, you know, we've stayed very consistent with that effort and have made tweaks, uh, with that. We kind of revamped our email, uh, marketing, um, and sort of doubled, tripled down on, on the email, um, marketing end of things so we really try to do the spectrum And of course we still do traditional uh, we'll do some traditional advertising in some in- industry publications uh we have partnerships with some uh heavy equipment sites that we post our listings to that link back to us mm-hmm. uh, you know in, in directories and that sort of thing uh and then npr and pr really really moves the needle for us uh, probably could do a little better job with being more consistent on that end uh, but when we get press it Really works, and it's interesting. We get a, we get a pretty decent uh, press coverage without doing a whole lot of work. And it's like, all right, well, if we can like, kind of double down our efforts there, you know, how much better would it be without, you know, sending press releases out every day? So.
0: Greg, do you have somebody in house that's running your social media, or do you hire another company to
1: do that? So we do all the we do all the Facebook advertising uh, um, in house. So any kind of paid uh, traffic we handle in-house okay. um work with a content development team um who handles posting things to instagram uh and facebook uh and but more importantly develops high quality content on our blog that we uh that we push uh you know that we that we promote and push traffic to uh, so yeah we uh we have we have uh three full timers right now um And we're thinking about bringing on uh, a fourth full-timer, but we will utilize um, contractors uh, and other providers as much as possible Mm -hmm. uh, because they're experts in that area. And and in some instances, we don't really require, uh, quote, unquote, a full-time person, and we we certainly don't require them to be here. Right. So we utilize VAs. We have a, a proposal writer. We have a content development team. We have our developers. And I'm probably forgetting others.
0: Well, we're pushing an hour, my friend. And so yeah. we're going to wrap up there. If there's any listeners that want to get a hold of you at, can you tell them where they can find you?
1: Yeah. Um, I mean, you can always find me, uh, at municipid everywhere, um, or municipid.com. Or if you, you just, if you look up municipality and bid or any combination of that, you'll find us. Uh, but it's M U N I C I B I D. Uh, and then you can find me, um, uh, on Facebook or Instagram or LinkedIn. It's just uh, Greg Berry. Excellent. Greg, I want
0: to give you a big thanks for coming on the show and sharing your tidbits about Municipid. And that was a great show, man. I liked all that information. We'll wrap up from there. Listeners, thank you for tuning in again. And we'll say goodbye to everybody and see you on the next show. Thanks, Chris. The Entrepreneur House is a business accelerator for established entrepreneurs. Imagine spending an extended period of time with other successful entrepreneurs working together and growing your business. Day to day, you interact with other driven and smart business people. Spending an extended period of time around them alters your business and your mentality around business. Goals are set, business grows, new partnerships develop, greater profit margins are achieved, the productivity skyrockets for those that are in the Entrepreneur House, and you get to have an incredible adventure while doing it. This year, we have three different events, a three-day productivity weekend in different cities all around the world, a two-week all-inclusive retreat for entrepreneurs with six-figure businesses. This will be full of workshops, masterminds, and adventure. Then a four-week event in Chiang Mai, Thailand for established entrepreneurs, also full of workshops, masterminds, advisors, and fun weekend social events. Be sure to check out the details at theentrepreneurhouse.com as soon as possible. These events will fill up fast. For those of you that are interested in have some questions, be sure to contact us through theentrepreneurhouse.com forward slash contact. We will respond as soon as possible. For now, saludos from somewhere in the world.